I'm very grateful for my upbringing in the church. The Word of God got planted in my life very early, and it gave me some assumptions on this world that have made my life rather easy. Uh, in some ways, it's made it more complicated, too, because I had to unlearn some things that I was taught early. Uh, it's interesting, some of the ways that we interpret Scripture, and you can see these passages, which are an Advent focus, look towards what we call eschatology, the end times, when Jesus is coming. And I have a feeling that the coming of Jesus created more fear for me as a child than delight. Uh, we were always afraid that we might miss it. So if you can get in my mind for a minute, this is Parma, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. It's one of those post-World War II communities. You know, they pop these little boxes down the street. John Muir Elementary School is about nine blocks away. And six-year-old Chucky <laughs> would walk back to, ch to school and back on his own. It's hard to even imagine that that world ever existed. I mean, six years old, would we allow our kids to go nine blocks today? Kind of interesting. Uh, along the way home, I'm sure what was to be a 10-minute walk became a half an hour one. I would have chased butterflies and done unspeakable things to worms and other creatures that I found along the way. But I was always anticipating coming home because my mother was a stay-at-home mother. She worked in the house, and you could always count on mom to be there. But we had had this strong teaching in the church about the imminent return of Christ, and you never knew he was, when he was coming. And I can remember little moments when I would walk in the house and come in the back door, and I can hear that screen door kind of slamming behind me, and I would say, Mom, and I wouldn't hear anything. And I'd go on into the living room, Mom, and then I'd become a little more frantic, and I'd go upstairs, Mom. You see, I thought Jesus had come, and I was left behind. There's another part of that history that made me not expect Jesus so much is I often heard adults say to me, do you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? <laughs> now, beyond the worms, you can imagine how much sin I produced as a young person. And there were a lot of things I didn't want to be doing when Jesus came back, but I kept on doing them. So the ancient cry of the people of God, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, was not one of expectancy for me. It was more one of fear and dread. Over these next three weeks in Advent season, we're going to press into this idea of the coming of Jesus. We're going to try to do something that's almost impossible. We're going to take an Old Testament passage from the lectionary and a New Testament passage, and we're going to bring them together and see how people of God have been waiting on Him for a long time and see what that speaks to us where we're at today. Here's the reality, though. If we read these scriptures only through our contemporary lens and our experiences of comfort and making a better life for us in the future, we will miss their meaning. Because what is declared through Isaiah and what Jesus was giving for his people coming after him was that their life was going to be very difficult. And the declaration, Maranatha, Lord Jesus comes, means two different things for people, whatever their life experiences are. If we read them only through our lens, we will be tempted to create charts and guess the date and figure out when he's coming. But if we read them through the lens of the people that received these original scriptures, we will get a new hope. 
And we will enter into this Christmas season with a sense of God with us. So let's go to the passages quickly. Psalm 64. Now, I wish I had time to exegete the whole passage for you. I'm only going to go off of one verse because we don't have time to go through each one. I hope you'll go home and read them. As you read each verse, you'll be able to tie it back to a moment in Israel's history. As Isaiah the prophet is saying these things, it would have triggered memory in the people uh, that were listening about what was happening. But the reality where they were at at this time was not that the Davidic kingdom was in place. They had been exiled. The Assyrians had come in and taken the northern tribe and had taken them captive. And so the whole declaration of Isaiah is about God's intervention. There's this sense of waiting for him. People are desperate. So verse 4 is the one I'm just going to play off this morning. It's this. From of old, no one who has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you. Declaration of worship, who acts for those who wait for him. Now, this word was important for a people that were in exile. They had lost all freedom. Just try to think of it a moment. Can you think about what it would be like to wake up where we live today and have all of our freedoms gone? We, we can't even imagine that. They had been taken captive. It had been years since they had been to the temple. You know, the Psalm 73 about, I went into the temple and it changed everything. They didn't even have that to change their perspective. There was a longing. They're saying, God, rend the heavens. Come and do something like you used to do. Because we're in a miserable state. Things have fallen apart. Yesterday, we had our Saturday prayer time, uh, the first Saturday of the month, men gather here. It's an interesting time. We pray together, and Pastor Nathan said, I'm going to read this passage and just allow us to pray what the Holy Spirit brings out of this passage for us. And it was very moving for me. For about 10 minutes, the men prayed for the people of North Korea. I mean, this wasn't pastor-led. This was lay-led. And how the Holy Spirit takes you in a prayer time and you get into a topic. And it wasn't praying, Lord, don't let them bomb us. That wasn't the prayer. The prayer was a burden for the people that were in trouble. People like the people in the time of Isaiah, who had everything taken from them and were longing, and they're saying, God, where are you? If you hear the language in this text, God, your face is no longer shining upon us. Where have you gone? We're desperate. I was moved by that. I thought, you know, I've been watching the news for a couple weeks. I'm not praying for the people of North Korea. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who are there in their miserable conditions. And I'm not thinking about them. This was the state for the people uh, that Isaiah is speaking to. Outwardly, there was a great oppression on them. But the prophet connects them to their own inner problem as well. Here's what's interesting. When I look out at the problems out there, it's amazing how quickly it comes back and I realize how desperate my own heart is. Hear the prophet's words. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? See, the prophets connecting their problems to their own practices. They chose that road of going down there. We have all become like one who is unclean. It's comprehensive. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Those of you who grew up in the church, like me, the King James, they're like filthy rags. 
Even the minute we start to lose sight of our own sin and we start to think we're doing really well, the prophet reminds us, even your righteous works are like filthy rags before God. They don't attain unto anything. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. See, the problem was exterior and it was interior. I feel the desperation of the world I live in is not just a problem out there, but I feel the problem of my own struggle with sin. And the psalmist says, those who wait on the Lord. Oh, I love this concept. This isn't passive waiting like we do in a doctor's office. You know, where you take your iPad out and play games and do other things. This is kind of the Hebrew mindset of pressing in and taking hold of the situation, knowing that you're desperate. Unless God comes in, there's not going to be an intervention. And see, as we develop and we have opportunities in life and we get more resources, there's a confusion in our minds sometimes. We really start to think we have more control about the future than we really do. And things then come into our life that shake us out of that and remind us, we need to wait on God. Well, it's the same message that Jesus was giving to the people in Mark chapter 13. Again, I wish I had time to go through all the passages. Go and read all of the passage. It has the same type of language. The Son of Man will come. The the heavens will be rendered. People will be gathered into the Lord. His presence, He's the only hope in those times. Now, let me tell you, for the first four centuries, the church had no power whatsoever. I'm reading the Bible with new lens every day of reminding myself, if I read this as a patriotic American, I will miss the message. If I read it according to the opportunity that's before me, I know in pluralism now the church is losing its power, which is good. Maybe we'll become a New Testament church again. But the truth of the matter is we have power exponential compared to what the early believers had. When I read the letters about the expectancy that Jesus might come, these are people who are in desperate situations, often hiding and losing everything. It changes the way you read these passages. And Jesus talks about there's a day coming. This was to be hopeful for his people. You see, this wasn't something to be terrified. They were already resolved that it was not because of their acts that they had been accepted by God. It was the grace that had been exhibited through Jesus coming and taking their sin and rising over the penalty of it. This is the gospel message. Everything else in life becomes worship out of that. And so Jesus coming doesn't create fear. creates expectancy because he's going to gather us up. And everything is going to be new. There's four things that Jesus says that I want us to get, beginning in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. Says it for the first time. For you do not know when the time will come. It will be like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to... Stay awake. Second time. Therefore, stay awake. 
For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at the midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You're coming along now. Remember, in the ancient perspective, when you repeated something that multiple times, that was the essence of the message. So why is Jesus saying, stay awake? It's not that we'll live in fear like little Chucky who comes home and wonders if Jesus came and he missed it. You won't miss it. It'll be so glorious. You're out of here. The next space is going to be phenomenal. He says, stay awake so that we don't start to assume that this is the essence of life. Because what happens to us is that we invest so much in the now that we forget that this is just the first chapter of eternity. Eternity is going to be glorious. Why do I spend so much time and so much money and so much resource in making the now good? Am I trying to create paradise when paradise is better than you can even imagine? That's why he says, stay awake. Because none of us wakes up in the morning and says, God, I want to forget eternity. It happens slowly to us. We become more and more consumed with the things of this world. We create a life for our family so that they won't have problems. We do all of these things to create the American dream. Bah humbug! <laughs> Trade the American dream for the kingdom dream. The kingdom now, which is the presence of God that will walk with us. The kingdom in the future, which is better than everything now. What Paul says later, all the sufferings of this world, I'll trade them in because the glory of Jesus will far outweigh it in the future. Ooh. So what does that do to me in this season? It makes me a grace-saturated person. Because I know that this isn't the end, I want to keep my account short. My account short with God and with other people. If Jesus is right around the corner, I don't want anything left undone here. I want the bitternesses in my life to be released. I want to release forgiveness in my family. We're going to be gathering with family members who are miserable people. <laughs> he who laughs the loudest is most guilty. Now, I just want to assure you that they're in another place and someone's telling them, you're going to be both people that are really miserable. In case you didn't catch that, that's you. Jesus is coming, so let's be people of grace. To ourselves first, you're not going to pass on what you haven't experienced. Allow His grace to overtake you make you alive, and then pass it out to others. Bury the axe. I just thought this great idea. What if you took an axe and actually wrapped it this Christmas, put it underneath the tree, unwrapped it, and people would look at you like, why did you get an old one? It's not even a new one. And say, well, I've decided to bury the axe. I'm not going to hold these things against you anymore. Yeah, wow. It would change families. How are you investing your other resources? What would happen if we really believed in eternity? 
I'm not talking about becoming Amish and losing our connection here. The Advent message is that Jesus is Emmanuel as well, God with us. He came into incarnate body, so what's happening here is significant, but it is not the end. Jesus said, where your heart is, your treasure will be also. We heard that these past few weeks from Pastor Nathan. He says, don't invest where moth and rust are going to destroy. Invest where it's going to be eternal. Think of how much stress would come off of our Christmas if we thought about all of our resources from an eternal perspective, not from a temporal perspective. Hmm. I know one thing is we would quit getting all these letters for year-end giving because we'd be such generous people, groups would be trying to figure out how they're going to take care of all the funds that have been released to the people of God. And be good news. When I started this week, I, I've been, I didn't know how to land this message. Great thing about being a pastor is you get to dwell on the word all week long and it rips you apart. I realize how much of my life is consumed with the now. Now, I, I do want to be present. But what I've learned is that people who have the highest sense of eternal often are the most practical in the present. When you have a high sense of God, you don't become ethereal out there. It changes your present in some ways. So I thought back to an event that happened in my life. We were living in France at the time. We'd been studying French for six weeks. It was probably the most miserable experience of my life to that point. We love our flag, but the French love their language, and they have a way of making you know that. There were many days I thought it was a cruel joke that God sent us to France to learn French and then go to Mali. I thought I would never speak. So the fact that I do it today is one of those modern miracles. But after six weeks, I was done. We fortunately had a week of vacation and a friend gave us a car. We packed our three kids, three years old and one year old, into that car, a little Citroën. We drove down to Provence. Uh, a woman had a house that she kept for missionaries that we could stay in. And while we were there, I was turning 30. Now, when you're turning 30, it seems like a big deal, but that's just like ancient history now. <laughs> but it's one of those moments when you're asking those kinds of life questions. I went out for a five, six-mile run. Uh, we strapped the kids to our backs and took a hike up the mountain after that. You could see from the mountain where we were staying all the way down to the Mediterranean. It was beautiful. It was just a great experience to get away from the challenge of everyday life, eating great French food and just being away. And I came back, and I thought I would indulge myself, and I asked Ingrid to take the kids for a little bit. And I poured a hot bath after all that running, and I was just going to lay there, and I pulled out this book that I was reading. Still have it. You can see the pages are falling out. I've read it four or five times. It's by Peter Kreeft, Love is Stronger Than Death. His whole point is that you'll never live until you face the reality of your death. If you think you have all the time in the world, you won't really live. But if you live with the knowledge that this could be your last moments, you'll fully live. So in the middle of it, he says, if you knew you had 10 minutes to live, what would you do? 
Now go do it. So I thought about it for a while, and not being a very deeply reflective person, I just thought, you know, I'm going to keep reading. And a paragraph later, he said, no, I told you to put the book down. (laughs) Smart guy. That's what happens when you're a professor of philosophy at Boston College. But it was one of those moments that I realized that I invest too much in the now and don't think about the future. Let me just twist that this morning. If the Bible is true and Jesus' return is imminent, we don't know if that's 10 minutes, a year, maybe another 2,000 years. But he said it's imminent and he said stay awake. How would we live differently in the next 10 minutes? In Emmaus Hall, I wouldn't ask you about the Jets. Even though I'm tempted, I wouldn't make fun of Ann that Ohio State won yesterday. (laughs) It would change the way I enter into this season. So people of God, I just want to say what Jesus is saying to you this morning. Hear this. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Stay awake. Maranatha, even now, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.